we have got a lot of text to read today. And I just want to forewarn you, it's a longer sermon than normal. So just buckle up. If you're like, oh goodness, I'll be late for lunch. Just consider it a spiritual fast. (laughs) I promise that by 2 o'clock your belly will be full. Uh, Okay, so... This particular passage, where we've been, is gonna, it's going to tie back into where we've been. So remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Judah and Tamar. And the problem in this story is everybody's objectifying everybody else. And when we objectify people, not only do we hurt them, but we destroy our own world. Because we create these really negative ripple effects in our own life, which forces us to either stop objectifying people or objectify people more. And so um, Judah because of the courage of Tamar, learns a really valuable lesson, which, it, listen, if, if you're a woman in the crowd today and you want somebody to emulate, Tamar's courage, not the shrine prostitute part, don't do that part, but her courage, her courage to stand in the face of literally death, to call her, like, Tamar's a Canaanite woman, and she changes the course of God's chosen people forever. This is really powerful because she's willing to stand in there. You need that kind of chutzpah in the lineage of Jesus. Oh, guess what? It is. Um, And so Tamar changes Judah, and Judah begins to grow and change. And the good news about that is if you're here today and you've really blown it and you feel like God can't use you, I have hope for you today. God's call on your life is irrevocable. It doesn't change just because you messed up. And secondly, we have Joseph sent off to Egypt. Now, he had his dream at 17 years old. He's 30 when he finally gets liberated out of prison. So that's 23 years. Now, we have the seven years of plenty. Is that right? 13 years. Sorry. I have a degree in theology, not math. It's 13 years. Seven years of plenty, so now he's how old? 37. 30 plus 7 37. I always have to check my math. And then we have seven years of famine where his brothers are going to come back. Now, how many years into the famine do they come back? We don't know. Because Egypt and Israel are really close. If there's plenty in Egypt, there's plenty in Israel. If there's a lot of rain in Egypt, there's a lot of rain in Israel. That's like saying Pullman and Moscow. There's a famine in Moscow and plenty in Pullman. No. If there's plenty in Pullman, there's plenty in Moscow. That's the way it works. And so uh, how long did it take for them to get through all their food? We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But let's say it was a couple, three, four years into the famine, they run out of their own food. Okay. So now Joseph is somewhere between... 39 and 42. 39 and 42. Two, three, four years. Not seven full years. Think about this for a second. I am currently, at this age in my life, 43 years old. I wonder where I would be if God gave me a dream at 17 that He didn't fulfill until today. Like, would I have bailed out on that? That's really powerful. Like, Joseph, I guarantee you, didn't think that the fulfilling of his dream was going to happen the way it did. 
that he was going to have to get through prison and being wrongly accused and all of the things that he had to endure to get where he was going, would I have endured it or would I have bailed out? That's a good question for us to wrestle with today. Now, we've got a ton of text to read and a ton of, there's two kind of major themes in here and I, I, I tried to edit it and I just cannot, I just can't. So buckle up, you guys ready to go to work? Here we go, text stuff, let's go. Genesis 43, 42, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? <laughs> he said, behold, because we're reading the ESV. So he said, behold, because they say that a lot. I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers. Now, is he called Jacob here or is he called Israel here? So is this a good decision or a bad decision? Like this is super dysfunctional. The rest of you 10, you can die. But Benjamin, if he died, that would be bad. The rest of you guys, I don't care. Like maybe there's some dysfunction there. For he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Dream fulfilled. How old is he? Somewhere in the late 30s, early 40s. Somewhere in there. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now, I want to invite you into uh, kind of something that I think is really significant. David Foreman calls this the lullaby effect. What happens is we read a story, and because we've read or heard these stories before, we read them with the end in mind. And so we get kind of lured into this false sense of, I have this figured out. Let go of the end. We don't know how this is going to turn out. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Does it seem at all like Joseph is ever going to reveal himself to his brothers? It doesn't. And the question is, what changes his mind? Because what we're going to see is something super powerful. Okay. He spoke to them like strangers, and, or treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. <clears throat> and he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord. I'd love to pull apart that word nakedness, but we don't have time. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. You probably want to circle that if you're taking notes. Your servants have never been spies, which adds, yeah, there's some irony in it. And Joseph is going to put him to the test here, okay? He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, your spies, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So he says, hey, 
I'll tell you, I'll prove whether or not you're honest. You guys are going to go to prison, bring your brother down. Sin, uh, to which they say, no, can't do that. So he says, then send one of you and let him bring your brother, which is stupid. You don't have the Camel Highway Patrol patrolling the roads here. You don't ever travel by yourself, ever. That's ridiculous. You would fall among robbers and be robbed and left for dead like a man going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether it is truth, there's truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are all spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. <laughs> they didn't even get the chance to respond. And now you're going to jail for three days. You want to talk about harassment? On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you'll live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they were like, That's a great idea. So they did it. And then they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Now let's stop here for a minute. These guys recognize, that the, the, at least in their own mind, the reason why this problem is happening in their life is because of how they treated Joseph. Now, it's kind of true but not in the way that they think. This isn't God going, and I'm going to make you pay and make you pay and make you pay. This is Joseph going, I don't know if I can trust you guys or not. Now think about this. When somebody wounds you or betrays you or hurts you in some way and you don't get it resolved right away, what happens? You have a lot of years to think on it and stew on it and develop all kinds of beliefs about it. And you have to connect the dots in your mind about the things that you don't know. Like, why did they do this? And what about this? And, and, and all of a sudden, this person becomes an object in your mind because in order to justify why it's okay for you to be angry at them, you have to objectify them. So Judah objectifies Joseph to get him sold into slavery, and because he does that, it invites Joseph to objectify his family. Does that make sense? Because where we speak from is where we invite people to. When I live a life that objectifies the people around me, I invite them to objectify me. The only way to fix the issue of feeling objectified is to refuse to objectify others. That's tweetable. <laughs> that's, a good, that's deep. But it's the reality of this story, and there's all this drama and tension. Like Joseph is going, I don't, these guys, they are dishonest. They are bad. They are evil. Why? Because he's had over 25 years to think about it. And to roll over in his mind. And every time something bad happened to him, guess who he blamed? His brothers and his father, as far as he knows, by the way. 
if you'll remember the story. He blames them, which, by the way, is exactly how the adversary works, isn't it? He does bad things in your life and then gets you to either blame God or blame the people around you. That's how he works. Right? Like, why would God allow bad things to happen? Really? Well, let's talk about your perception about God. But that's another conversation. This is what the adversary does, and he's doing it in the life of Joseph. And so far, Joseph is losing this battle. Now, here's a question for you. These people in your life that have wounded you, betrayed you, dishonored you, are they all good or are they all bad? So here's what we do. We paint the picture of the whole person with the little bitty piece that we have. And that's called transference, and it's super dysfunctional. Solomon, King Solomon in the Bible, is he all good or is he all bad? The answer is yes. King David, a man after God's own heart in the Bible, is he all good or is he all bad? Yes. Abraham, the father of nations, the, the one to whom God came and made his covenant, like, is he all good or is he all bad? Yes. And what we do with one another is we start to try to make the people that wound us all bad. Why? Because then we have justified anger. I'm angry at you because you're bad. No, I'm angry at you because I'm hurt. And if I don't get that right, then I can never be set free from it. As long as I choose to make you pay for the way you wounded me, I'm the one who continues to pay. Because in order for you to be objectified, I have to invite people to objectify me because the place I speak from is the place that I invite people to. Does that make sense? This is what's going on in this relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And his, like, there's this, like, am I going to love you? Or no, you guys, you cost me so much. I had it right. I had things figured out. This is not how it was supposed to go. I was not supposed to have to go to jail. It's your fault. Not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to make you suffer along the way. And what Joseph is going to do is he's going to put them to the test to prove that they're still the same people that threw him in the pit. And the problem is they're not going to respond well, not, at least not from his perspective. They're not going to respond the way he expects them to. Check this out. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you that sin, to not sin against the boy? Remember, Reuben was like, well, let's just throw him in the cistern, and then Reuben was going to come and get him later and bring him home. But by the time Reuben came back, they had already sold him. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. Why? Because the first crack of they're conflicted about what they did. Maybe they aren't ogres. Maybe they weren't as sociopathic as I wanted them to be. 
Now what do I do with that? Do you, do you feel that? Uh, that yuck in Joseph's heart that I, I want, because this anger, this sorrow, this betrayal, this is how Joseph has defined himself for 25 years. How does he just turn it loose? And then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Okay, so they get their, their sacks of grain, and Joseph says to put their money back in the sacks. They don't know that. But they get home, and they discover something. Let's read on. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Yeah, because if you betray the most powerful nation in the world, bad things happen, right? And Jacob, is this Israel or is it Jacob? Okay, so we're going to see a bad, see not, he's not going to function awesome here. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. So he just writes him off. That's awesome. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you, but put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Wait a minute. I wonder how that helped the other 10 feel. Really? He's the only one left. You know what, Dad? I got some words. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So the idea is they go up and they want to go back and get Simeon. Why? Because they love him, because he's their brother. And Jacob says, no way. Joseph is dead, and now Simeon's dead. And you guys did it to both of them. You killed Benjamin, and I won't even be able to stand it. Well, time goes on, and they eat all the grain that they had purchased. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 43. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said, now why do we need to call Judah to the surface? Here's why. Because in this second trip, we're going to watch Judah. We're going to watch Judah restore the family. Judah is going to be the one who becomes the catalyst for this impressive reunion. Why? Because of the courage of Tamar. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Israel. See the name change? Now he's going to do something good. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? <laughs> 
Why did you even say that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? We didn't know what he was going to do with that information. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will rise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Okay, now I want you to see what Judah did. Reuben said, if we go and Benjamin dies, you can kill my two sons. Judah says, if we go and something happens to Benjamin, I'll be the one that takes the punishment. And that's a far cry from the Judah that objectifies people. Somewhere along the way, Judah grew up. He got some things figured out. And by the way, his life from here forward is going to be defined by these kinds of moments, not by his biggest mistake, not by going to his dad and deceiving him with the coat. His, his, his life isn't going to be defined by that. And wouldn't it be awesome if you're sitting here this morning and you've blown it? Wouldn't it be awesome if your life wasn't defined by your biggest mistake? Maybe there's hope. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Judah says, I will, if we don't bring him back, I will personally take on the shame of this. And in an honor-based culture, this is huge. It is way easier to die than it is to live with shame. By the way, that's not just true in their culture. It's way easier for you and me to die than it is to live with shame. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey and some gum because his breath is bad, and some myrrh, and pistachio nuts, and almonds. <clears throat> Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So Jacob makes him be honest with the money. Take it back. Uh, you know Joseph is hoping that they don't bring it back. Because then he can say, hey, see, you guys had money in your sacks. You're dishonest. Just like I said, off with their heads. And he can be quite justified in being angry. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make it ready for the men who are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys because that's what you do. You wrong me, I'm going to take your donkey. And that's how that's going to go. 
So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when they came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and we have brought our, own mo- our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. Now check this out. Don't you know that Joseph wanted so badly to have them not bring the money back? Don't you, like, you start to see this, like, dang it, they did the right thing. Maybe there's some good in them. Maybe they're like Darth Vader, like they're consumed by the dark side of the force, but there's good in them. I sense it. And what do I do with that? Because I want so badly to be angry at them for the wrong that they caused in my life. Now, Move to Joseph's house. Pick up the story, Genesis 43. When Joseph came home, they brought in the house to him uh, the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. You start to see this. When Joseph sees his younger brother, all of a sudden his heart starts to melt and he wants to be angry, but he can't. And he doesn't know what to do. And so it causes all this emotional, and he just cries. I don't know what to do with this. Healing is hard. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and then by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that's an abomination to the Egyptians, which I'd love to talk to you about, but we don't have time. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Why? Because Benjamin was the only one that wasn't involved with him being in Egypt. And they drank and were merry with him. So they have this this meal together. And then it comes time for them to head back with their grain. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, what happens is, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I gotta read it. Let's read on. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. Now what happened was they rode off and then Joseph sends Egyptian soldiers after them to capture them and discovers the money in their sacks and his personal cup in the sack of Benjamin, which he set it up like it looks like Benjamin stole something from his house. Now you steal something from a high-ranking government official and what happens? 
Benjamin. Like, this is their worst nightmare. This is the one thing that they were like, no way, no way. We will never let this happen. This is the one thing that couldn't happen. So they bring him back, and it says, when Judah, why? Because we're setting Judah apart here. As his brothers came, and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground, and Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Which is Egyptian for, you didn't think I'd figure this out? And by whatever means you figure it out. Uh, And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Why is Judah speaking? Judah's not the behor. Why is Judah speaking? Because his shame's on the line. He's not letting Reuben hold the course for his own personal shame. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go in peace to your father. So what Joseph does is he says, look, you guys didn't do anything wrong, you go. But the one who stole my cup, he's going to be my slave. Bad idea. Because in Jacob's eyes, they still can't go home. Are you with me? Then Judah went up to him and said, terrible translation. It says that Judah drew near to him, Karva. In Isaiah, it says that Isaiah drew near to the prophetess and she conceived. The idea here is that Judah comes up to Joseph and hugs him closely and talks right here. That Judah has to have this passionate, vulnerable, exposed conversation with Joseph and he doesn't want anyone else to participate in it. Why does Judah do this? Judah does this because he has figured out what it means to value other people. Now watch what he says. Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left on his mother's, of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set your eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when, your, when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If your youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons one left me and I said surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since and for the first time Joseph realizes that his father wasn't involved and it changes everything 
If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs to evil and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, that as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, let, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Do you see what Judah is doing? He's not working an angle here. He's not, take my kids, or take one of my slaves in exchange, or take one of my servants, or do some. He's not working an angle here. He's like, listen, I will take the boy's shame, and I will own it as myself, as my own. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus. And all of a sudden, we start to understand why Judah becomes the lion. Because he figured out somewhere along the way that he didn't have to stay broke. He didn't have to stay messed up. He didn't have to stay the sum total of his mistakes. He could always be what God's intended him to be, just like Joseph. And yeah, it was a mess getting him there. It was a mess getting him there. And Tamar had a whack story getting him there, but it worked. Who cares how God brought you here? You're here. Now what do we do with it? Let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah takes his place, not just, not just in taking his place as a servant, but in taking his shame as a thief. And I would love to play with the metaphors between Jesus and the thieves on the cross and Judah and Benjamin and all that stuff, but that's another sermon for another day. I would love to do that. But I want you to see what happened to Joseph because the one who blew it humbled himself and got himself whole. Check this out in Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried. Make everyone go out from here, from me. No one stayed with him, but when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Yeah, you think... Like if you read this story for the first time, you have to come to the conclusion that it doesn't look like Joseph ever had any intention of revealing himself to his brothers. What changed it? What changed it was the moment Judah got real and transparent and started treating people like people. Even at the expense of his own comfort, Judah treated people like people. That's how the kingdom of God is supposed to function. We can't treat them as objects, right or wrong, in or out, good or bad. They're not all good or all bad. They're not. 
We're humans created with tremendous potential, marred by an attitude called sin, and it gets in the way, but we're not defined by the sum total of our mistakes. You can be whole. And that has all kinds of implications for our life. I wonder, not to get political, but to get political. What would it be like if the two sides of the political aisle, rather than trying to point at where everybody else is wrong on the other side, would acknowledge the fact that the other side isn't stupid and that they actually have some pretty good ideas? What if we could work together on bringing the good pieces rather than trying to disband all the bad pieces? Because not any one of us has it all figured out. Consider this in your marriage. When you have seasons where you're bitter at your spouse for whatever reason, right, wrong, big, little, doesn't matter, in order to stay bitter at your spouse, you must objectify them. And in so doing, we begin to resent all the things that they aren't rather than celebrating the things that they are. And the Bible has a really good word for that. It's called sin. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or your prayers will be hindered. That's what the Bible says. What if we did this with our children? What if when our children make foolish decisions, which they will, why? Because they're humans with incredibly limited experience. And in the moment, every idea seems like a good one. They can't see past the end of their own nose. How in the world are they ever going to see whether or not a decision is good or bad? What if rather than beating them up over the poor choice, we can sit down with them and call out the truth of who they are and how this decision gets in the way of that? You will never be everything that God intended you to be when you live outside of his purview. You can't. So why would you settle for second rate? Why would you settle for baggage? It's not about beating them into submission. It's about helping them take hold of a better reality. What if we were willing to not make judgments as parents that, well, when you made this poor decision, child, it reflected poorly on me as a parent, and therefore you'll pay for me looking bad. There's a few hundred thousand other applications for you. But what I want us to see in this section of Scripture is that God's purposes for you are irrevocable. They will be fulfilled. And that when we grow, when we make mistakes, we don't have to be defined by them. We, can, we have the capacity to move forward, get better, and do the right thing in the same situation down the road. You can. You can do that. You can, and we need to be a community as a church, not of perfect people, but a community of people who are committed to moving forward. We've got to be a people committed to moving forward and not letting other people stay stuck. Like, I don't want to move forward. But the problem is you're attached to me and we're moving forward. And my will is stronger than yours. Some days. And other days, that rule gets reversed, right? That's the way community works. 
Some days I get to be the strong one, and some days you get to be the strong one, but together we don't let weakness and opportunity line up. So we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake, but we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications that I think are particularly important. Number one, God will fulfill His purpose for you. You cannot run from it. You cannot run from your God-given purpose. You can fight it. You can kick against the goad all you want to. You can try to deny it. You can do that. But God will fulfill His purpose in you. You can't run from it. I guarantee you, it won't look the way you thought it was going to look. Joseph's didn't look the way he thought it was going to look. But God fulfilled His purposes in Joseph's life and in Judah's. Next implication. People and circumstances will seem to get in your way. Listen, every single one of us, if we're honest, it doesn't, we don't have to look very deep to understand that we have passions and dreams and hopes and aspirations for this world. Many of those God-given. Because the Bible says that when you pray to the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean He's going to give you whatever you want. It means He's going to put the desires of your heart in you. So when you're praying and walking with the Lord and you have a desire, it may very well be God's desire for you. You're like, but my desire is to be rich. Sweet. <laughs> Let me tell you about tithing. <laughs> Having money isn't a problem. Being a Christian isn't a vow of poverty. But use your money for kingdom purposes. Everything's going to seem like it's working against you. And for many of us, we had a dream or a passion or a calling at some point in our life. And somewhere, little by little by little, circumstances or people saying things or somebody did something to me and it created this set of circumstances and now I have this belief that I can't be the thing that I always wanted to be. I can't be that. With all of the Holy Spirit-inspired love in my heart, that is bull crap. Please hear my heart in that. It's a lie that, that you can't become the thing that God made you for. That's a lie from Satan. And every day, you get to choose whether or not you're going to buy that reality or you're going to buy God's reality. Everything's going to give you excuses about why you can't do it. Circumstances are going to get in your way. You won't have enough money or you won't have enough energy or you won't have enough time or you won't have enough opportunity or whatever. People are going to tell you you can't do it. People are going to tell you you shouldn't do it, whatever. It doesn't matter. If God put it in your heart, go! Next implication. While your destiny may not look like what you expected, it will always be better for you if you stay faithful to your convictions in your present circumstances. It will always be better for you if you stay to, faithful to your convictions. It will always be better for you. Last implication. Judah's ability to grow allows his family to be reunited 
his brother to realize his destiny, and his father to smile again. Listen, do you understand that the shining star of this story isn't Joseph? It's Judah. Judah is the catalyst that reunites the whole thing. And we're going to see next week a powerful story of forgiveness that all started with Judah, but all began with the courage of a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And all of a sudden, we're not talking about one isolated incident. We're talking about how faithfulness has ripple effects into generations. I love coming to this communion because it shows us that there is no place that you've gone to. No, no, it doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. It doesn't matter what shame you carry. There is no place that Jesus won't go to tell you how much he loves you. This reminds us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the fact that we're not stuck in our mistakes. And thank you for examples of guys like Judah that grew, they changed, they became better, they got refined, they were sanctified. Lord, thank you for Joseph's capacity to forgive and how that inspires us to deal with the hard hurt places in our own hearts. Give us courage to go there in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from real life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.